We are here to talk about a book. Did somebody wrote a book? I've written a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe we've read the book, so I think we're in good shape. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 52 of The iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Ben Sherman. Hello from Houston. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, Ash Furrow. Hello from Amsterdam. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm a Canadian iOS developer who previously lived in Toronto. I worked for a couple startups, including 500 Pixels, and now I'm working for Artsy in New York. In Amsterdam. Yeah, from Amsterdam in New York. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be moving there in 11 months. So To New York? Yep. That's kind of interesting. Do you just... Yep. Moved to Amsterdam just for the heck of it, or? Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I met Mike Lee at a conference over the summer, and uh, you know he said it was a great place to be, and I should come and stay for a little while, and that's what I decided to do. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's nice here. There's a there's a fantastic developer community. I would highly recommend it if you can come. I have a coworker that's about thirty minutes outside of Amsterdam. We talk a little about what goes on there, but I haven't visited yet. Yeah, it seems like an interesting place to be. Do mm-hmm. people in Amsterdam call it Amsterdam? <laughs> some of them do. Yeah, some okay. of them do. I just bought a bike from a, a fellow Amsterdammer, and he's got Amsterdam stickers all over it, so I can always tell when it's mine. Nice. nice. Okay, I, I like the the, the, the bikes the bikes there that have the like uh, little kid buckets in the front. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty awesome. Just seeing the bikes there is pretty like it's an amazing sight. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so many of them. So uh, we brought you on today because you wrote this book, uh, mm-hmm. Functional Reactive Programming. I'm I'm really curious to uh, just get a little bit of background on it. Like, what made you decide to write it? Well, there's this new framework which the book talks about in the later chapters called Reactive Cocoa, and there weren't really a lot of um, good introductions to Reactive Cocoa out there. And I feel like it's a really powerful and useful framework. And I wanted to learn more about it. And the best way for me to learn is to to write and teach. And instead of doing a series of blog posts about Reactive Coco introducing readers to it, I thought I'd write a book instead. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you self-published this, correct? Yes. Yeah, this is the second book I've self-published. Um, I've, I've worked with publishers before, but it's, uh, it's a messy process, and they make you use Microsoft Word, and it's just oh, it's terrible. So uh, I used a service called LeanPub, and uh, they let you write in Markdown. It's all distributed through Dropbox folders, so it's uh, super easy to do. So what's your other must-have book that you've written? Uh, I wrote one called Your First iOS App, and uh, that one was a little bit longer than this one, and it actually takes readers through the first steps of opening up Xcode for the first time, creating your first project, all the way through to um, how to integrate with the basics of core data. So it's actually a, um, a pretty comprehensive book for like a first-timer. And uh, I actually did, a, did a, um, a Kickstarter campaign for that, and uh, it got pretty popular, and I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one too. Very nice. So did you have an editor or anybody else helping you out, sort of like you know proofreading and stuff like that? Because I, I wrote a couple of books back in the day for Manning, and I really kind of hated that whole entire process, but you know, having somebody both technical and just like a somebody who knows English better than I do checking them over uh, mm-hmm. can sometimes be helpful. Did you get, did you have any of that during this book writing process? For this book, I, I haven't got 
uh, a technical, sorry, a technical editor for it. For the other self-published book, the Your First iOS App Book, I did uh, have someone who volunteered actually, and, and he said, uh, "Would you mind if I technically review your book?" And I said, "Not at all. This is this is amazing. <laughs> like, uh, you know, great." For this one, I just did it myself. And LeanPub has this um, this concept of publish early, publish often, so you can release updates to your book as you go. So I just proofread it myself, and then I would just, <laughs> this sounds terrible, but people would email me in, um, like bug reports almost, and I would just fix them in the book. So people were really generous with their time uh, in that way, and uh, I really appreciated hearing from listeners too. I kind of like that approach just so that you can get books faster, and I think that the sort of ebook movement has moved people to write uh, uh, somewhat shorter, more focused books, uh, which I think is good. I buy most of my books on Prag Press, and primarily because the the bar is set so high, but they also have the Dropbox integration. So if you buy the book, it just shows up in that Dropbox folder. And then I can open that on my iPad and open it in iBooks. And, and that's, to me, the best experience I have. And when I get, uh, <laughs> I have like four or five LeanPub books I've, I've purchased and I get the updates like, you know, like two or three in a month. And then I have to like go and copy that to my Dropbox folder, overwrite the old one, and then go back into my iPad and reopen it in iBooks. It's that process. I wish it was a little bit more streamlined, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I do appreciate like fast updates because, you know, when you print a book and you have a typo in there that just makes you look like an idiot. You can't, oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> you can't exactly just go back and fix that. Yeah. The first book I ever wrote, actually, it had a, a typo on the cover and I was so <laughs> angry at the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. They spelt language wrong. Um, and it just, it, oh, to this day, like my name is on this book with a, a, a cover with a typo on it and it kills me just because like they were supposed to be in charge of the cover that was in the contract and then they messed it up. So stop the presses. Yeah, really. <laughs> so maybe we can get into the, the meat of the book. One of the things that I, I guess you mentioned is that there wasn't a lot of res- there weren't a lot of resources out there for, uh, learning reactive cocoa. And I found the same thing and everybody we ask is like, oh, you need to read this book, it's good. Uh, so I, first off, would like to thank you for just filling a void in the community. And second, you know, like, how did you learn all this stuff? Did you use it on a client project, or were you just sort of researching and thinking that this is the right way to go? Well, um, I kind of came across it organically, just throughout browsing and things like that. Um, I think Anna Sipster had an article on it that I found, um, and I, I started reading, and it really confused me, uh, which is, uh, to me, like a, a sort of a heads up that maybe I should look in this direction. So uh, I took a look, and, um, and the more I read about it, the more it confused me, actually, because all I was reading were uh, documentation header files, basically. So I, I decided to really commit to it and learn it in my spare time. And then later on, I worked for a company called Tehanlax, and they do uh, they do some open source stuff. And uh, I worked on an application there called Upcoming, and it was a calendar application, and I wrote it using Reactive Cocoa with another developer there. And Brendan, and we, we learned a lot in the process of doing that, and so I, I just kind of like kept up with it, and then I maybe submitted a few pull requests for just minor issues and things like that, and uh, I, I really enjoyed the community, but. Uh, what really drew me towards it were um, there were a lot of people with questions about it, and I could go on the issues page or the Stack Overflow page for the tag, and I could answer those questions. And the more I answered the questions, the more I learned about it. So maybe we can back up a bit, and can you describe exactly what we're talking about? We're talking about functional reactive programming? Yeah, it's a big term. So there's programming, which I assume we're all familiar with, and then there's functional reactive in front of that. And the way I like to describe it is, you know, functional programming, it has a lot of... Um, 
different definitions depending on who you talk to. But the most agreed upon one is that you have functions without side effects, and then you you just use um, data manipulation like maps and things like that in order to uh, chain data from from one thing into another. But there are no side effects, so you can't have a variable x equal to something, and then x is equal to something else later on. It's just x is always equal to that initial thing. And that's really you know cumbersome because real-world things have side effects, like input is a side effect. And then there's, uh, so reactive. Um, reactive programming is just basically a spreadsheet. If you have a cell that's A, and you say A is equal to B plus C, then whenever B or C changes, then A changes automatically. Those changes propagate automatically throughout your uh, spreadsheet. So I like to describe functional reactive programming as like the peanut butter and uh, chocolate of programming paradigms. It's that sweet spot between functional programming and reactive programming who, like, Individually on their own, they're not really that useful, but together they become this really cool sweet spot. What you do is you have these uh, things called signals, and signals are really core to reactive cocoa and functional reactive programming in general. And what a signal does is it emits values over time. It doesn't have a concept of any previous values. It doesn't have a concept of a current value. It just sends values like as it receives them. So uh, a really uh, simple illustration for this for iOS and Mac devs is uh, KVO. You can very easily create a signal out of a, a property that is uh, key value compliant. So whenever that property changes, you have a signal that emits a new value. And then you can do something with that. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the core of it. Um, what you do with that, you can get into some really complex examples. But the most basic example is uh, just logging a new value would be really easy to do. Yeah, I think one of the sort of quick wins in my mind, just not knowing a whole lot about it, and a whole bunch of people I respect have at least been looking into it, right? So it's, it's kind of something that I can't ignore. And so then you go look at it, and it kind of like, at first you get scared because the code looks totally different than what you're used to. But the KVO story, I think, is probably the most compelling like sales pitch, just because you know traditional KVO is is really clunky. You know, it works, but the method you have to implement, and if you want to watch more than one property and things like that, uh, I think the, the reactive Cocoa KVO story definitely looks favorable to the alternative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've had a lot of people, when I tell them that, they're like, oh, well, there are, um, you know, Blocks Kit or something similar to that that'll wrap KVO for you. Why don't you just use that? And that's fine if that's all you're going to use it for. But KVO is is a really good introduction to reactive cocoa and functional reactive programming. It lets you um, graduate into using reactive cocoa for other things. So uh, an example I like to show uh, beginners is one with a gesture recognizer. I just have a um, a pan gesture recognizer attached to a view, and I have a sub view, and I want that sub view centered to be wherever the the touch moves to. Uh, so the gesture recognizer has an extension. It's a signal that emits values as the recognizer changes. And then I can map those values into screen coordinates, and then I can assign that through a binding to the view's center property. So it's like one line of code to do all that. That sounds pretty interesting. Uh, do you have a, a link for that you can put in the show notes? Yeah, I've got one up on GitHub I can send you. Ash, I, you should know I, I'm mostly a Mac programmer, and when I first started reading your book, and well, when I first looked at Reactive Cocoa in general, I, I sort of thought, well, a lot of this is stuff I can already do with Cocoa bindings on the Mac, and mm-hmm. and, I, and I actually still think that, but maybe you, you've touched on it a little, but I, I do think it's interesting to talk about some of the stuff that Reactive Cocoa does that's above and beyond what you could do with something like bindings, which is fundamentally sort of similar to the to the simple examples you find if you just read the 
basic tutorials on reactive cocoa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So you, you've got bindings on the Mac, and then you've got like value transformations. Tran sorry, NS value transformer, I believe. Yeah. Um, and it it just maps you know one data type into another, and then your bindings are are uh, bound to the things that are emitted out of that. So. You've got that, and and that's really you know easy and and great, but uh, we don't have those on iOS, so it's it's it seems like Reactive Cocoa is a little bit more valuable on iOS than OS ten, I'd say, but it's still valuable on, on OS ten because you can do things like features and promises, and some really cool things like um if you have a, a signal that represents a unit of work that hasn't been done yet because maybe it's expensive or it's a network operation that you don't want done more than once then you can return that signal, and then only when that signal is subscribed to will that unit of work actually be executed. So you can use it to defer execution and structure your code in such a way that you've got uh, uh, signals that are just processed through maps and filters and different operations on signals like that. Yeah, I, I, I found that stuff the most interesting because I'm coming from a place where I use bindings every every day, and so... The stuff that's just as simple as you know having a view update when some model property changes is not that new or novel, but the stuff that you show in your book where you can do what you just described and and have network requests, for example, be part of reactive cocoa seems mm -hmm. really powerful to me. Yeah, yeah it's oh. a it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> I did appreciate how you structured it, where you didn't just say, "Okay, let's re rewrite the entire application as if we already knew reactive cocoa," because like all the concepts would change at once. And it would be really mm -hmm. hard to grok what's going on. So, you know, you took some baby steps, uh, which I think was a good approach. However, you know, I didn't fully understand the, like, at what level do you stop, like, converting everything to reactive cocoa, right? Because, like, if you, if you just use the simple things, you can get some quick wins and some pretty easy to understand code. But if you, if you want to chain everything together, then it changes basically your entire API. Like, all of your networking code has, like, an immediate return value, which is a signal, instead of taking a block. Right, mm -hmm. you know, how do you balance that to change the entire app to be really, really reactive cocoa dependent versus you know trying to isolate yourself from that so that it's not such a um, an opinionated sort of uh, invasive thing in your code base? Mm -hmm. I would say that it's uh, it's important to sort of have a, a check and balance there to make sure that you're not going too far because certainly I've I've pushed for this strongly in the client applications that I've written and um, you know the other developers on the team have had to. Um, you know, get up to speed with functional reactor programming in order to, you know, work in the same code base as me. And, and that was a little bit, you know, premature, I, I think, uh, in hindsight. But if you can get uh, a group of developers who are, you know, willing and able to commit to, to learning something new, even just for a couple of days and, and trying it out, um, you can get some, some real wins, I think, um, in terms of testability and, um, having a structure of, of code. So, I mean, what we're really trying to do to go a level up in the chain here is we're trying to reduce state because if you have, um, state and mutable state in your application, then you have different test cases you need to be aware of. Uh, you've got invalid state that your application could get in. And that's really hard to uh, test for because all of your code managing that state is specifically designed so that it doesn't get into an invalid state. So trying to put it there through testing is, is really kind of difficult, like through manual testing. So there are a couple of wins that you can get through using uh, functional reactive programming using Reactive Cocoa. Um, how much you want to actually do it is, uh, is something that I'm still learning myself. Uh, I just started at, uh, at this new company, Artsy, about uh, a week ago. 
and uh, you know I've I've gotten the Rod of Coco put in the pod file, so it's uh, it's installing now, and that's uh, that's really awesome. But I'm being cautious about how much I uh, I rely on it because I don't want to intimidate the other developers on the team and and uh, introduce a large cognitive dependency for them. So, what things do you start with? KVO, just like we discussed, um, that's the easiest way to do it. There was one one example where uh, we've got sort of a custom navigation stack thing with a back button, and I wanted that back button to disappear whenever we were showing the offline view to show that the user wasn't online. Uh, so I just used uh, Rad of Coco to uh, subscribe to the um, show's offline view property, and then whenever it it shows the offline view. It switches on the value that's sent on along that signal and just either hides or shows the back button. So if we were doing KVO, we'd have you know some object that has a property of whether we're online or not, and you had to wire up the, the KVO with whatever those clunky things are. But with Reactive Cocoa, you just create a signal with that, and you subscribe to the signal. Am exactly. that right? Okay. Yeah. And that was really useful in this uh, view controller because it was already subscribing to uh, another, a single other uh, KVO property, and then um, it it wasn't using the context at the time, so I would have had to add a context and then um, added a second context in order to switch on that, depending on which, which uh, um, property was emitting a new value, and it just it would have been a lot more work instead of this one liner. So uh, when you're working on a team, and you know, I think it's you could probably say with good certainty that if you work on a team size of say, you know, more than two or three, there's probably a strong likelihood that somebody on the team probably like either hates or just maybe dislikes uh, strongly this style of programming. So I mean, at that point, you just sit down and say, okay, we're only going to make this a dependency if everybody on the team is you know on board with this style. Because one of the things I think can be problematic is when you have sort of a uh, schizophrenic uh, application architecture where some of it uses KBO and more reactive style, less state, you know, functional chaining together of operations and other uh, styles are more imperative. You know, I think that's really bad for a software architecture to to mix those two everywhere. So, you know, how how would you approach putting this into a project? You know, are you willing to like remove it from the project you're working on if your teammates you know, are uncomfortable with it? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't know if I would be willing to remove it. I mean, I, I typically work on smaller teams, uh, so I, I haven't run into this problem before, but I, I can see it being an issue. I think that probably the, the most uh, important thing would just be to communicate with your team and let them know, you know, why you think it's valuable and maybe, you know, have a, a lunch and learn or something like that to sort of teach them the benefits of, of using a more functional paradigm. Because even if you don't go, you know, whole hog on FRP, uh, you can still learn some valuable lessons just through programming functionally and having, you know, less dependence on uh, mutable state. I think that's the real issue here. So, like one thing, sort of going hand in hand in that, with this being sort of a new style of, uh, well, not a new, not sort of, it is a new, uh, a different style of programming than what we're used to and what Apple recommends, and you know, a whole bunch of people that I would consider competent developers are somewhat confused by it at first, and that's totally understandable. Um, mm-hmm. Hence the need for your book, and and you know, they're competent developers, so you know, you you sell them on the benefits, and you and you do the lunch and learn like you're talking about. But what what about like uh, beginners if you hire somebody who's pretty new to this stuff, uh, do you think it's appropriate to teach them reactive cocoa, or do you think they need to understand the old way uh, first and then sell them on the benefits? Yeah, I would I would lean towards the latter, where you would uh, sort of graduate them slowly up the chain. I mean, 
you shouldn't really be doing something like a advanced FRP before you have the basic Cocoa Core competencies down. So understanding what KVO is and how it works before you're using signals to wrap properties and to turn them into a, you know, KVO signals, it's probably very important, I'd say. So if, if you have a beginner on a project who's getting into iOS development for the first time, then I think keeping them a little far away from the, the reactive Cocoa stuff might be a good idea. On the other hand, I know there are some studies that show that, you know, teaching beginners functional programming is actually a little bit easier than imperative programming because they don't have to maintain that or sorry they don't have to construct this mental model of what you know what state uh, is <laughs> yeah that's exactly yeah. what it's about to say <laughs> that's, that's uh, in uh, university my intro to c course um, i had this excellent professor and he had this like cartoony voice and literally he would like write on the chalkboard like every step of the program and the state of all the variables and it was a really effective way i think to learn how that stuff works, but you know, it requires a good teacher, I think. So, you know, I would say I have to agree with you with uh, the concept of just sort of starting from X and then moving to Y. Like, even today, I think it's important that people understand what life was like before Arc. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you got to understand what Arc is doing for you. So, I think that's uh, a smaller but relevant example. And the only other thing that sort of bugs me about this is like, is, you know, this is like a it's like a radical approach to software development made you know it's a conscious decision say i'm going to do what i think is best for this project given my skill set or the skill set of my team Uh, but a lot of us do client work and some of that client work is you know we write it uh we ship it to the app store and then at some point they are going to hire a team to bring it forward and Mm -hmm. in the past i've had pushback on non-standard frameworks and things like that and it you know drives me a little bonkers but I think that's something to be concerned with if you're writing apps for other people that you may not maintain forever, right? That are they going to be able to find somebody to work on this? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a lot of iOS developers, but the the pool of iOS developers who are experts in Reactive Coker is pretty tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's almost um, a couple different problems there uh, because, as you pointed out, you can have a another team or more members of your team take over and uh, maybe you're not involved in the project anymore to, to kind of hold their hand through the learning process. And that can definitely be worrisome. And the other idea is that, you know, if say we wake up tomorrow and realize that this whole reactive cocoa thing is a, a, a huge mistake and we, we go back to imperative programming, I mean, that that's also a, a danger to the framework. I don't think it's likely to go away because uh, GitHub's behind it and they're, uh, they're using it internally like they're dogfooding on, on all of their uh, OS 10 projects. So I, I don't think that's likely, but it's still something to be concerned with if you're introducing a any third party dependency. And that's a that's a broader discussion too to have. Like how um willing are we as developers who are working on client applications? How willing are we to introduce dependencies on behalf of our clients? Um, even something like uh, CocoaPods is uh, uh, something that's pretty contentious right now because we've got you know, developers out there who don't want to introduce a, a third-party dependency into their application. They'd rather um, just, you know, use submodules or some other, uh, you know, non-dependency manager-style solution to uh, the open-source problem. So, I mean, I, I've met a, a developer who just wouldn't, he wouldn't use CocoaPods because he wanted to be able to just hand a, a, a directory over to the client and say, this is the source code, it works out of the box. Of course, yeah, you, you can't do that with Cocoa Pods. Just, yeah. you know, I think honestly, I kind of, I kind of want to have one of those duke it out sessions, you know, respectfully, because uh, mm-hmm. I find that argument ridiculous, honestly. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but not I, not I because so yeah. like I 
everybody can choose their own, you know, what you, what you want to do as a professional. And I, and I respect that. And if you choose, like you look at it and be like, it's not for me, it's totally cool. Uh, what I don't like is when somebody says nobody should use it because of these problems. And I think that like their concerns are like legitimate, right? Like, you could pull in third party code that like uses uh, some private uh, method or, or fails the private framework check because they use some selector in a weird way, or the code is just terrible and will break in the future. And so you still have to like, you know what you're pulling in, right? Like do your research and, and don't pull in stuff, libraries that are bloated and not maintained and written by people who aren't really qualified to, to uh, ship code like that. But there's nothing stopping you from taking your own private code and distributing it yourself via private GitHub repository as a CocoaPod and never touch static libraries again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I had the opportunity to do some contracting for a company out of Halifax and and that's how that they actually structured their code is um, through different private pods and uh, it worked really well for them. Yeah, so I guess I'll get off my soapbox, but like Sometimes I just get a little bit annoyed with the with the utter hatred of like new things. Anyway, yeah, I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so we talked about the kind of new things. We talked about kind of convincing developers that this is the right way to do it. What's the selling point for like your manager, for like the product owners, you know, people that are actually clients, people that are paying the bills? How do we kind of sell reactive cocoa? Is it, this is the right thing to do? Like, what what are the main benefits, and what type of applications? Well, that's a good question for the non-technical people who are involved in the decision-making process. You know, what are the um, implications and the pros and cons for using Reactive Cocoa? And I think we've discussed the cons pretty thoroughly, but, you know, what are the pros? So from the developer's perspective, it's pretty easy to say. It's just, I, I find it more enjoyable to write functional reactive code than imperative code, but that that's not a easy sell for a manager. I, I think that the the biggest win is that you've got more testable code if you write uh, in a more functional manner, just in general, you can test your code easier uh, or more easily. But um, if you're using FRP, then you can really use some cool things. And if you're comfortable stepping outside of the um, the you know sort of anointed design patterns that Apple you know specifies, you can use something called Model View View Model, which is something I discuss in the book. And um, it's not really a, a radical departure; it's still sort of within the Model View controller paradigm. But uh, what it does is it lets you um, test your uh, presentation logic a lot easier. And that can be a big win for managers if they're looking at things like uh, test code coverage or uh, you know the number of unit tests or, or whatever metric you're using. So you've got uh, you've got that win. I, I'm not going to say that it, it'll give you a more performant app because it probably won't. You know there are um, ways in which uh, it's. I mean, Reactive Cocoa itself is going to add a, quite a few um, layers to your stack trace if you're debugging it, say. Um, but it won't; it shouldn't uh, negatively affect the performance of your application. It won't speed it up, but it won't uh, slow it down unless you're running a debug build and then it does a lot of extra stuff for you, so uh, like logging and tracing and stuff like that. So I've had people come into uh, Stack Overflow with like. I wrote the exact same code imperatively and using Reactive Cocoa, and the Reactive Cocoa one is like a hundred times slower. What's going on? And I just point out that, you know, you're running in debug mode, so it has a lot of um, every, every signal is given a unique identifier using string with format, which slows down things quite a bit actually. So, uh, so that's the cause of that. But back to your original question: How to sell a manager on this? That's a really good question. I mean. Can I, can I jump in? Uh, yes, please do. <laughs> like, so I spent a really long time in my early 
career in .NET trying to justify architectural decisions and dependencies and even should I unit test to management. And eventually I realized that like that's, you know, the engineer's job is to ship the best software, you know, considering all of the constraints and dependencies that you have in your workplace. And one of those things being unit testing is something that is just non-negotiable for me. I'm a professional developer and I'm going to write code that doesn't have bugs to the best of my ability. And that means for me that I'm going to unit test uh, as much code as I, that I can confidently do so without going off the deep end, right? Like just enough. And in places where it's much easier to test, like Ruby code, I will test a whole, whole bunch more. And places where it's a little bit harder to test or more cumbersome, like in iOS projects, I will test less. And I think, you know, the tooling and stuff like that can make that a little bit balanced out. But what I don't think is is right is to say, well, I've read that unit testing is good, so can I please have permission to do it? And they're going to look at it and say, well, you're going to be writing code, therefore you're going to be you know, taking more hours to deliver features. And, and if it's a line item on an invoice, you know, people can just say, I don't want that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas... If you instead say, the cost of this feature is X, and I'm a pr- professional developer, this is, you know, it's not done until it's done. And so that includes things like unit testing. So I think that can extend to architectural decisions as well. Like, trust me to do the best job that I can. And that means that I don't ask a manager whether or not I can include Reactive Cocoa. Now, I think uh, Reactive Cocoa is an interesting one because it's kind of a heavyweight dependency. And if there are existing developers on the team, you still have to you know, consider all that stuff. But asking a manager seems like the wrong question to ask. There's managers, there's also clients, there's people that are writing, writing the checks. And at a certain point, it comes down to money. You know, if we can remove state from our program, we can make the case that that's less bugs that's less time fixing bugs, that's more features. You know, is that, are you seeing that with more complex applications? If you're doing a reactive style, I mean, you have less state, easier to test, less bugs. I mean, that could be more money. Is is that something that kind of you're seeing? Yeah, so I've used it extensively in my personal projects, and I've actually open sourced a couple of them on GitHub. And just, you know, having, me personally, I also unit test because it's, it's a matter of, professionalism if from my perspective. So I have seen like a dramatic increase in the amount of test coverage that I've been able to attain using Reactive Cocoa. I also see a lot less like I, I built this application for myself. Um, it's called C41 and it helps you develop film um, because there are actually still people out there who develop film. And I wrote it completely using MVVM and Reactive Cocoa and I installed Crashlytics in it and I haven't gotten a single crash report since I launched it at Christmas time. So uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty proud of that. And again, it's, it's open source. It's on my GitHub page. Well, I mean, that right there. If we're talking about convincing managers and you know, whoever stakeholders, if it's a long running project, a lot of times I've had luck actually saying, "Look, I listened to this podcast. You know, the fellow they had on there, he just explained real well that it reduced the number of bugs and it sped up the amount of work he was able to get done. I'd really like to try it for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or a month on this, you know, maybe tangential or side-ish project and see if that works. And a lot of times they'll give you some leeway if you're an employee in a company and it's a long-running thing. And uh, sometimes they won't, but at least that way you're you're offering them some value proposition and at the same time you're also you know, not making it a permanent change without proving it out first. Yeah, I would, really I would probably insert a little bit of like self-study. Just, yeah. 
Just so like, I totally agree with what you're saying, but like, when you come to somebody and be like, you know what, I was really interested in this idea because I heard it on this podcast, I decided to try it out on a little side project and it worked out well there. You know, so, you know, I think that's a good approach to sort of introduce things like that. But I do a whole bunch of stuff on the side just because I don't, I don't feel comfortable spending my clients money on like experimentation things that may, may not work out. You know I mean? So on some level it is like professional development and it's good for the, the project to be always learning new things, but maybe not always use their app as your playground. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I, f- I, I feel the same way. And I think most of the big new technologies that I learn, I try to learn them on my own time because it makes me feel a lot more comfortable using them in a production setting too. So I'm not writing my novice, terrible code. It's <laughs> a real app, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah and, you and, talked and, a little bit about MVVM pattern in it. When I've been starting to hear about the kind of functional reactive kind of style in iOS, I was kind of surprised to hear MVVM and Reactive Cocoa mentioned kind of side mm-hmm. by side. They seem kind of orthogonal to me, but they seem to be mentioned the same thing, not just by your book, but by other people I've been hearing too. Are, are they somehow related? Yeah, well, so functional reactive programming as a concept has been around since the 90s, I think. So it's, it's you know, not, not too young, but... Um, Reactive Cocoa as a framework is actually based on the Rx extensions in .NET, uh, which are, I believe, an open source project that you can go and explore if you want to. Uh, so when they ported over a lot of the um, same concepts that that framework had, they also took a look at MVVM because that's very popular in, in .NET as well. So they're they're related in sort of a historical context. I just think personally that MVVM is a more, I don't know, a hazard to say like better framework for, than MVVM because better is not really the, the right term. I, I think it's a more appropriate framework for building iOS applications and then model view controller uh, just out of the box. And MVVM isn't really that different from model view controller. So I'll do my best to sort of explain over the air what, uh, what MVVM is. You still have your model and you still have your view, but your view is, is formally coupled to your controller. So you only have, uh, you know, one, one view, one controller, you treat them pretty much as the same object. And then instead, in between the uh, the view and the controller and the model, instead of having a, another controller, you have a view model, which uh, encapsulates all the presentation logic that you might have. So if you have a date in your model and you want to expose that as a string in your user interface or your view, then your view model would be responsible for uh, transforming that from an NS date into an NS string. And you can test that. So it's really, uh, it's really encapsulating the logic, you know, not having any references to your UI views directly because you can use things like bindings in order to observe your view model. But, you know, having it as a standalone piece of, of logic that you can test, you know, you've got inputs, you've got outputs, you can test those. Okay, so if I had a date and I wanted to change it to a string like yesterday or something like that, I would put that in a, in a view model instead of maybe in, in a controller where it doesn't quite fit or in a model? Exactly. So if, if you had it in a controller, which is probably the more traditional MVC way of doing it, then what you've got is a controller with a bunch of other external uh, state uh, that you've got to introduce into your unit tests that you're writing. But if you have it in a view model, the view model doesn't actually reference anything in UIKit. It just has foundation. So you can test that a lot easier because you don't have to rely on like, you know, UIKit stuff. Like it just, it, it's a headache you don't have to worry about. I think it can also help um, with portability between iOS and OS X. Kind of helps you mm-hmm. separate parts of your code base that'll work on both out better. 
Absolutely. Hmm. If you have a, if you have a multi-platform application, even between, you know, if you have a universal application with uh, iPhone and iPad support, or even like an iOS and OS X application, then you can write your view models and share those between the different applications, which is really handy. Now, the really cool thing is if you're using a, another framework like uh, another tool like Xamarin, uh, where you're actually writing things in C Sharp, then you can use the same view models for iOS, OS X, Android, and Windows Phone. So you can write all of that presentation logic once and repeat that use uh, throughout your different applications. So um, you mentioned observing things in the view model in order to update UI kit elements. So that stuff goes in the controller? That's right, yeah. Okay, so if I understand the you know sort of the big picture correctly, you know to to build a sufficiently complex application using reactive cocoa, you're you're modeling all of the behaviors sort of ahead of time, and then you just sort of say go, and then at that point it's a machine that uh, runs itself, so it's responding to events and other things happen, and it chains and transforms data in order to update other things. But at some level, most of your code is just sort of registered and viewed load. Is that more or less correct? Mm, that's correct. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, in, in .NET, you know, you'd, you'd obvi- like in, in the early days of, of web forms in .NET, you would run into uh, the page load method in basically <laughs> a web page that would basically contain like all of the code for the web page. And it would be like switching on params, you know, that are accessible. And uh, it became like, you know, the, the first like litmus test on is somebody a bad programmer or not just because they put all of their code in this one method, right? It right. kind of seems to me like you'd be doing so much in viewed load. Like, is it is it easy to understand the big picture? The you know, can you see the forest for the trees when you're sort of registering everything just right there at once? Yeah. So the really cool thing with um, with this approach using MVVM. In, in just Reactive Cocoa without MVVM, uh, you definitely have run into that issue where you've got just reactive spaghetti, just like, you know, bindings and state transformations everywhere. But if you separate that presentation logic out to a view model, then all you do in view load is bind your view properties to your view model properties. And that's it. Uh, all of the logic for transforming that data is, it's all inside the view model. Okay, so I I definitely need to look into that more just because, you know, what I have in my head, it seems like uh, not great. <laughs> uh, so having a good example of splitting that out. I'll, is C41 probably the best example I could go look at? It's something real? Yeah, um, definitely. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's the best because I wrote it, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's an example and um, it's got uh, test coverage and everything. So you can take a look at that and see how I, I did it. Cool. I wanted to ask about... A couple of uh, well, a couple of other things. One, um, one thing I didn't quite get in the book is the difference between like cold signals and I don't know if hot signals is the right word, but uh, I noticed that mentioned in a couple of tutorials. Could you go into a little bit of detail on those? Sure. Um, so the difference between a cold and a hot signal is really esoteric, and ninety nine percent of the signals that you'll encounter are all cold signals. Um, but then there's also this like weird concept of a warm signal, which I still don't completely understand. Uh, Justin Spar Summers has tried to explain it to me, and I don't completely understand it. But the nice thing is with Reactive Cocoa 3.0 is that uh, this is all just going away, and everything's going to be a, a cold signal. So uh, just let me... I'm trying to refresh my memory here, because I haven't used a hot signal in forever. I believe the hot signal does work when it's created and not when it's subscribed to, uh, which is kind of weird from like a, a reactive cocoa perspective because you want to make sure that you just have stuff you know that's done when you're subscribing to something like a on demand kind of thing. 
so yeah, it's not something that I completely understand, I guess. Well, that's comforting than than I didn't get it at first glance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Uh, there's a couple of concepts in Reactive Cocoa that are super confusing and, and they're being removed in Reactive Cocoa 3. I wanted to ask if there are any kind of hidden gems that you've seen, maybe unrelated to Reactive Cocoa. Uh, one of the things that comes to mind for me was uh, the Strongify Weakify, and that comes from libext OBJC, I think. That's right. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about that and maybe any other sort of things that come along with Reactive Cocoa that are cool ideas? Yeah, sure. Um, so Reactive Cocoa itself has a dependency on, uh, as you said, libext uh which is uh, written by one of the creators of Reactive Cocoa himself. And it's got this really cool thing that you mentioned, uh, the Strongify Weakify, which lets you uh, simplify the code you're writing for um uh, use some blocks that are going to be stored somewhere. Uh, so you don't have to have like underscore, underscore, weak, weak self, equal self, that kind of stuff. It just does that for you using shadow variables, which are super cool. There's a lot in Reactive Cocoa. Probably one of the gems I like most is, um, uh, there's a class you can have. I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but it'll actually, um, conform to a protocol for you. And then you just tell the class, uh, what you want it to do when it encounters certain signal selectors or select for signals and they have to return void unfortunately but it's really cool if you have like a a delegate protocol that just responds to events then you can encapsulate that encapsulate that logic inside um, anonymous blocks that you just define in view to load if you want to so you don't have to conform to the protocol yourself and then you risk uh, introducing state into your application uh, view controller it's kind of a cool like a handy <laughs> thing to have in your back pocket yeah. sometimes you're like <laughs> Oh God, I gotta declare my protocol or create a new object or whatever. Yeah, if you're just like presenting a UI alert view or something like that, it can be it can be pretty handy. Yeah. I don't know if uh, I know of any other like gems or anything. It's uh I don't know. There are a lot of uh different operators that you can do on uh, signals themselves. So I like looking at the um the header files for uh, rack signal plus operators and just like reading through that and learning like oh you can do something like a sample so you can just you know i can create a signal that will emit whenever this other signal emits and you're just like when would i ever use that but then if you know about it you'll come up with those uh come into a situation where it'll come in handy so uh definitely look through the uh the operators uh header for that so objective c as a language at first glance like a lot of people hate it and I, I didn't lo- love it at first. In fact, my entire intention was to learn, you know, just like we were talking about with Arc. Like, I just wanted to learn the right way first, and then I was going to go to the, at the time, it was called Monotouch. Uh, and now it's Xamarin, because I was a C- C-sharp developer. And turned out I actually started to like the language, go figure. And I hear that a lot, like other people, you know, like once they get over the square brackets and the sort of wordy <laughs> method names and stuff like that, like some of the some of the aspects of it uh, start to appeal to you. Uh, and call it Stockholm Syndrome, I don't care, but I, I like it. But when you do things like chaining method calls with blocks, that really starts to get ugly. And it, it was a particularly egregious when I'm looking at your book on an iPad mini where like oh no it, it can't display i don't think a single line of code could display without breaking so like it's it was kind of hard to read just on this device and and that's part of the reason why i think it's like what i'm getting at is like objective c the language is kind of uh, maybe ill suited to this sort of like fluent interfaces and chaining things together and I know that there's been, there's another project called like, I think it's called underscore.m or something like that. I'll, I'll see if I can find the project. Yeah, underscore m.org. 
And it looks a lot like underscore JS, where you can sort of chain together things, and it's got map and filter operations. But it changes the style of, of Objective-C to more of a, like a C-based language, where you use parentheses and dot syntax, uh, where it's basically properties and blocks instead of Objective-C methods. And it seems like this is kind of frustrating to look at because it's not Objective-C style, but it supports this sort of fluent interface style a little bit better than Objective-C does. You have any mm-hmm. maybe comments on that? Do you find that you know at some point are we reaching a a limit on what is tolerable in Objective C to do from an API design perspective? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think that what's important as developers is to um, not become too insular as a community. I'm a huge fan of the idea of taking the best ideas from other developer communities and incorporating them into our own language and our own environment. Uh, whether that's Reactive Cocoa or whether or not that's uh, underscore.m. Um, there's also Objective Sugar, which is kind of cool. It adds some convenience methods. Uh, it follows more the Objective C pattern than the C pattern, but, uh, but it's still, you know, just, uh, easing your ability to do, uh, maps and stuff like that. You know, I think it's important to take a periodic look around and see what other developers are doing out there who aren't iOS developers and seeing if there are any cool ideas that we can steal from them to make our lives easier. And there's going to be some experimentation and there's going to be some things that don't work out, but it's still important to try, I think. Well said. Thanks. Are there other ways of doing reactive programming that make sense besides Reactive Cocoa? Um, on iOS and OS ten. Yeah. I'm not aware of any. I, I think, and this is something I, I talk about in the book too, um, sort of graduating developers up from just imperative programming to functional programming to functional reactive programming. Um, I think that if you're going to use um, even something like map and filter and that kind of stuff and uh, left folds and things, those functional methods in Rx collections are super useful. So even if you don't want to go whole hog on FRP, then you can still, you know, get some value out of the um, out of the functional way of doing things. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for uh, sharing with us. Thanks for writing the book. Hopefully this helps a few people go explore a new way of uh, writing programs, or if people are already old hats at Reactive Cocoa, it maybe gives them um, some tips or tricks that they can use to move ahead with things. We'll go ahead and get into the picks then. Jane, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. I've got one pick today. So about a month ago, I was sitting around thinking about a game I used to play when I was a kid, a Apple IIe game called Taipan, where you kind of sail around the Far East and trade stuff. I was like, oh, that was a fun game. I wonder if that exists. And I didn't think about it again for a few weeks. Then I was digging around the internet on something totally different, and I actually stumbled upon a link for someone who had done it for iOS. So Taipan has been ported to iOS. I've been playing it. It's fun. It's free download, like a $3 upgrade if you want to keep playing, but yeah, it's a fun game. One of the old Apple II games that's been ported over, so I've been playing it. And if you know me, I don't play a whole lot of games. So I played Angry Birds, and then I played Flappy Bird, and that's about my iOS gaming experience. But Taipan, fun. No wonder you're not playing lots of games. Those games are terrible. <laughs> I, I love Flappy Bird. All right, I have one in my pick, so. All right, Ben, go ahead. All right, so uh, I'm like really annoyed with like the state of iOS gaming, and, and every time I see a game that's free, I'm just like, nope. Not going to do it. And Angry Birds, like, the first one was really awesome because I think I paid uh, 99 cents or maybe $2 for it, and it was, like, a great, great innovative game, fun to play. Nowadays, it's free, and there's full of, like, all these buttons that my son doesn't know not to click on, including, like, the 
I don't know what it's called. Angry Birds Go. It's like a kart racing game in the Angry Birds with the Angry Birds characters. But like, there's 12 buttons every on every like menu screen, and one of them is like race again, and all of the others lead to liking this crap on Facebook and buying like turbo boosters and stuff. And I'm giving the, my iPad to a four year old to like play this game. He loves it. Anyway, I wish I could just pay them five or 10 bucks and just get rid of all that crap. So I've been on this sort of quest to like find games that don't do that and charge a reasonable price for the game. This one uh, is called Monument Valley and it's really, really nice. It's, it's well done. It's kind of like a um, MC Escher meets like a little platformer game. It's not difficult, but it's more immersive and the art style and the music and stuff like that is just really well done. So support these people who are making games that don't spam you with all kinds of stuff and try to get in-app purchases for, you know, juju berries or whatever. So monumentvalleygame.com for that. And uh, my other pick is uh, Sketch 3 just came out. And I've been a big fan of Sketch. I'm using it more and more for iOS design stuff. And uh, Sketch 3 is just a solid upgrade all the way around. Um, one of my favorite features is just the ability to create slices of things in an interface that you're creating. And then you go to the export button and you can just export all of it in Retina and 1X sizes uh, with, with basically a single button click. And it'll you name all the layers the way you want the image file names to be created. And it does it all for you. It's pretty awesome. And I'm working on an update to Giggle Touch, uh, an old game I created back in 2010. And I use Sketch for all the artwork for that game. So go download Sketch 3 from the App Store, and those are my picks. Very nice. Andrew, what are your picks? Um, I've got a couple picks today. I was in Los Angeles again last week, and I found a couple new record stores. And so I'm going to pick one of those because it's kind of one of those shabby little small mom-and-pop record stores that's been there forever. And a lot of times those are kind of all the same. They've got a lot of used records that you don't actually want to buy and are not in good shape. But this place was a little different and they had a ton of soundtrack music and classical music and just interesting stuff that I hadn't seen before and I found some cool stuff that I bought. And it's called Poobah Records. They're also a, a record label, but the music they release on their label doesn't seem to have much to do with what they have in the store. But anyway, I really enjoyed it. And I've picked this before, but I'm going to pick it again because it's been a while and it's Cocoa Heads. I met Chuck at Coco Heads, and Coco Heads has just been a big part of my Mac and iOS developer life for the last few years, and I think it's a great way to get to know people. It's a great way to network, and I've learned a lot there. We actually had a presentation on Reactive Coco this month at Salt Lake Coco Heads, and it was just good to get to discuss it with people who know more about it than me in preparation for this episode, and there's a lot to learn and a lot of people to meet there. So those are my picks. Plus one, Coco Heads. Oh, we've got a local one here, and yeah, great, great group. Yeah, I have uh, scouts every Tuesday, so I can't make it, but when that changes, I will be making it again. But yeah, anyway, I've got a couple of picks here. Uh, my first pick is Hatching Twitter by Nick Bilton, and it's basically the story of how Twitter started, and so uh, it goes through all of the different people who were involved, and you know, it, it's really interesting how it evolved and and where all of these different people came from. And it's kind of told as a narrative, so most of this stuff happened, but like some of the dialogue may not have happened exactly the way that it, you know, tells it. But anyway, it was, it's been really, really interesting. I've been listening to it on audible.com and, uh, I, I really, really like it. So, uh, that's one pick. Another pick is Discourse, which is an, uh, it's an open source, uh, forum software 
I would say it's sort of like the bulletin or whatever, but it's not. It's better. <laughs> it works. It doesn't suck. And it has a lot of features that make me actually want to use a forum. And the other thing is, is that it has a setting in there that you can set so that it will actually email you all of the posts so you can treat it kind of like a mailing list instead. So yeah, so I, I, I'm really excited about that. And we're actually going to be opening up a forum for our listeners. And this is just a way for you to support the show. The lowest cost option is $10 a year. And that's really just to keep the trolls out. So it's really inexpensive. Anyway, it's, it's, it's really nice way for us to be able to interact with you and for you to be able to discuss things like reactive cocoa or functional reactive programming. And we invite all of our past guests into the forum so you can talk to them as well. So anyway, I'm just going to plug that. There will probably be a little segment at the end of the show, so you can go sign up. But uh, yeah, we're going to launch that, and uh, it should be available when this episode goes out. So anyway, those are my picks. Ash, what are your picks? Well, I've got one. It's from a coworker. Well, two coworkers, actually. So I would just want to put a full disclosure on that. But it's, uh, it's a new podcast, actually, that uh, Orta and DB launched uh, last week called Wait, 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 wait. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, don't worry. It's, uh, it's very different than this podcast, um, but it's very cool. They have this kind of uh, shtick. If you're a fan of Russian humor, you'll love it. It's uh, it's called Pod5. It's at pod5.io, and it's just talking about new Cocoa Pods that have been released every week. Oh, that's Orta's new podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. He is the. Oh, I forgot you guys were working together. That's awesome. Yeah, he's he's good people. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Very cool. I always like having new podcasts to add to the list of ones that I'm way behind on. So, <laughs> Chuck, I don't understand how you can do this without a commute. <laughs> Like that's like my only time to listen to podcasts is my commute. So yeah. if I if I worked at home, I would like I would have to like cut my podcast in half. So a lot of them are NPR, so I can just play those in the background and ignore them. But uh, yeah, I just play podcasts while I work and you know kind of half listen to them. And then the ones that I'm really keen on, then I'll listen to those when I'm like driving kids to school and stuff. You asked. There you have it. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming, Ash. Thanks for having me. Good yeah, discussion. Good discussion. Yeah. If people want to get a hold of you or know more about this stuff, what's the best way to do that? Uh, so the best way to get in touch with me is through Twitter, and I'm Ash Furrow there. And uh, if you have any questions about uh, Rad of Cocoa at all, feel free to, to create a Stack Overflow post and send them my way, and I'll, I'll take a look at them. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up then, and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 